Okay. I think we're good now. How is everyone? Good to see all of you. Hi. <laughs> uh, it's me again. <laughs> your favorite Old Testament geek. Well, I don't know. Maybe not your favorite, but <laughs> an Old Testament geek. <laughs> um, I'm really excited to be able to be up here again um, and to be talking about Jonah again. I love this book so much, if you can already tell. And I'm just going to be honest with you. When I was getting ready for tonight, I felt a little bit overwhelmed with all the things that I have to say because chapter three and four are so good. There is so much here. So buckle up. (laughs) Um, It's going to be really meaningful. I hope that it will be meaningful for you like it is for me. Um, If you'll remember last week, we mostly talked about chapter one and kind of set up the book of Jonah. We talked about how I feel like I'm on a rescue mission to save this book from our children's stories because all we think of when we think of Jonah is the whale. (laughs) And we talked about how the whale slash the fish is just not the thing. (laughs) Um, But we also really talked about how this book is satire. Um, It's ironic. It's supposed to be funny. And I think that we don't know to expect that until somebody tells us to. And you saw a little bit of it last week, and you're going to see more of it tonight. Um, there's going to be a lot more people who we think we know what they're supposed to be like and we think we know what to expect from them and they do the exact opposite thing that we expect. Um, and more weird stuff, so be prepared for that. But we're going to come in, like last week, with an open mind. I want it to seem strange to you. I want you to come in with fresh eyes and let it shape you. So as much as you can, clear out all the clutter. Put out aside, aside all the things that you think that you know about Jonah And let's rejoin our wayward prophet. Um, We left him at the beginning of chapter 2, but to recap, God calls Jonah and says, go to Nineveh, which is weird because the Ninevites are the enemy of Israel. Really scary, brutal people. And Jonah says, no, thank you. I don't like them. And flees to Tarshish, which is literally the opposite end of the earth from where God is calling him to go. And because of that, God kind of chases after him, and he gets caught in a storm on a ship with the sailors who they repent to God and realize that God's in control of what's going on, and Jonah gets tossed overboard and gets swallowed by the fish. He says a long prayer to God where he repents in chapter 2, and we're really not going to touch on that too much tonight. You should read it if you have time. It's a really great prayer. But basically, God has a come-to-Jesus moment. Or, um, not God has a come-to-Jesus moment. Jonah. <laughs> Jonah has a come-to-Jesus moment in the belly of the fish and says, you're right. <laughs> I need you. I'm serving you. He gets spit up onto the dry land. And then we get to chapter 3, and it sounds a whole lot like we're at the beginning of the book again. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's like we hit reset. We're starting over, and we're like, oh, yeah. This is what the book's supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be about Jonah. It's supposed to be about God saving the Ninevites. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to chapter 3 with me. So God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. That's a little vague. What did he say? Um, if we go back to chapter, chapter 1, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
I'm guessing that this language in this passage, like preach against the wickedness of this city, the whole thing about God's fierce anger, the Ninevites might perish. I'm sure that's all fine with all of us and our hearts are warmed by that language and we're feeling really warm and fuzzy right now. Um, if you're not, that's okay. You're not supposed to. Um, we all kind of struggle like passages with passages like this that show God being seriously ticked at humans <laughs> and bringing judgment. So part of it, I think, is that we don't understand where Jonah and God are coming from. So let's remind ourselves. Um, we talked about this last week, but Nineveh is the capital of where? What great empire? Assyria. Yes. And Assyria was like the biggest, baddest empire that the world had known yet. There had been empires before, but none like this. They are like the most brutal people to have ever existed at this point. Um, like to put it in context, their pra practices were to conquer a nation and skin their leaders and deport their people. So really brutal, violent people. Um, they're brilliant militarily, but just really, really wicked. And so God's not being a jerk when he says, I'm calling you out for what you've done. And I think we need to know that. Like, God's not just being angry for no reason. He's looking at what the Assyrians are doing and saying, you can't do this. This is not okay. This is not right. When I look at my world, I don't want you to treat my people this way. So he's sending his prophet as a messenger to confront this exceptional instance of injustice unlike anything the world had yet seen. So... How does Jonah respond, though? Well, this time, he's a little bit more on board. <laughs> Last time he ran away, this time he decides to go. So it says, Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's all he says. And I think we're supposed to think that that's a little weird. Um, in Hebrew, I, I don't know it yet. I want to learn Hebrew, but I don't know it yet, and so I'm not going to tell you what the Hebrew is, but just trust me, it's five words. Um, some of you might be wishing that my sermon could be five words, but I'm incapable of that. Um, in English, it's eight words, and I'm not capable of that either. <laughs> um, but it's short. And, like, what's here? He just says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's nothing about what they've done and why they would be overthrown. But, but even more than that, who is missing from this? Maybe God? <laughs> like Jonah doesn't even say anything about the God who sent him to go give them this message. I think we're supposed to feel like this is really weird. It's really weird. And so that makes it even more surprising when in verse 5 it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. But Jonah didn't even mention God. <laughs> this is another part of like the satire and the extremity of this book that's supposed to kind of take us by surprise because these Ninevites are super, super evil. And then Jonah comes in and gives a really mediocre sermon and they're falling over themselves to believe in God. And that's not at all what we would expect, right? Like it says they called for a fast and put on sackcloth and from the greatest to the least of them, they all start to repent all from five words. A little bit odd, a little bit odd. Even more surprising is what happens next. It says, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. Um, 
warning bells would be going off in the Hebrew readers' heads at this because he's literally the most powerful man in the world. And he's arising from his throne, and so what do we expect? Probably rage. <laughs> Maybe he's mad. Maybe he's about to go, I don't know, lash out in anger. Um, but instead, what does he do? It says, he arose from his throne, removed his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So here's Jonah in the epicenter of this wicked nation, and his five-word sermon gets all the way to the king, and the king does literally the opposite of what we would expect him to. He is so humble and so moved to repentance that he literally gets down in the dirt, takes off every sign of his own royalty, gets down in the dirt and says, I repent, God forgive me, and all of you join me in repenting, and even the animals <laughs> join in in repenting. Um, this is another like cue laugh track moment that he mentions the animals. It's supposed to be like this extreme reaction where they're just trying to cover all of their bases, where like even the animals have to repent. So old Milky White in the backyard has to <laughs> repent too, just to make sure that she hasn't done anything against God. You're supposed to laugh like you just did. It's crazy. But the king says, maybe God will turn from his fierce anger. And I'm guessing that when we read this, there are other issues going on in our head. As we read verse 9, I'm guessing that's probably not your new favorite verse. Um, when he talks about God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Um, I mean, if you're sitting there thinking, I love thinking that God is fiercely angry and that people might perish because of it, like, I get that. That's, I know that that's not our favorite thing to hear, but I think one of our generation's biggest struggles is something I like to call Old Testament fear. Um, I think that we really struggle, partly because of our culture, partly because of the way the church looks right now and, with, and the way we've been raised with this language of God's wrath and with the fact that he brings judgment, with the fact that he sometimes gets angry with people. And so we read something like verse 9, and it makes us want to turn to the New Testament and avoid what it means for God to be angry. Um, certainly non-Christians look at this and get a little bit confused, a little bit upset. I think we also struggle with this. I think that we have this idea because of Jesus and the gospel that God is only love, and so that means that he cannot judge because why would you judge if you love? Um, and I just want to camp out here for a second because I think that we stumble over this. And I think this story addresses it so beautifully to show us how his judgment is a part of his love. And it's not a contradiction. Um, we struggle to balance the different attributes of God. But I think that in the worst case scenario, we try and throw out judgment altogether and say, I don't want to think about that. I'm never going to read the New Testament because if I think that God is judging and he's angry, I cannot believe in a God like that. 
maybe you're doing a little bit better with it and you think like, okay, so he judges, but he's loving and his love wins out in the end. Like his love triumphs over his judgment. And I just want you to challenge yourself to think of the fact that maybe judgment is not the opposite of love. In fact, I would really like to suggest that it's not. Instead, I would like to suggest that the opposite of judgment is apathy and that you really don't want a God like that. (laughs) I mean, think about it. When we think of God looking at his world and seeing the ways that it is messed up and broken, I mean, if you look at the world, it's falling apart in all sorts of ways. And there's a lot of messiness and a lot of sin and good things, but a lot of bad things. And you don't have to be a Christian to acknowledge that. Like, that's just true. There's a lot of bad stuff happening everywhere. And so when God looks at his world, to say that our God is not a God of judgment means that he looks at it and says, oh, silly humans, (laughs) but you figured out. You got it, and I'm going to be over here just loving you and letting you ruin each other. Like, I mean, really, that's, that's what it would mean for God to not judge sin. Um... I don't want a God like that, and I don't think that you do either. That's apathy. That's being passive. That's him turning a blind eye to the ways that we hurt each other, the ways that we hurt ourselves, the ways that we create a wake of destruction because of, like we talked about last week, living by our own vision of how the world should be. Instead, we have a God of judgment, and it's a really good thing because he says, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It's not okay but I know how we can fix it. You just have to turn to me. We need a God of judgment. It's not the opposite of love. It's actually in harmony with his love. It's a part of his love, a really necessary one. I need a God like that. We need a God like that. And I think the king has the exact right response. Um, I could go on and on about this topic, so if this is something that really concerns you, please feel free to come talk to me. I'd love to talk about this topic more with you, Um, but I just want you to know that God loves you so much, and that is exactly why he has to bring judgment on us and on this world. Um, But what happens when the Ninevites repent? They're met with grace. It says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. They are met with so much grace because he's not a vengeful God who's just wanting to lash out in his anger and strike people down. He's a loving God who was hoping all along that they would decide to turn to him who always wanted to forgive them and always wanted to show grace. His judgment is part of his love. How are we doing? Are we good? Okay. Moving on to chapter four. Um, Now we cut to Jonah. We're leaving the Ninevites. We're going back to our prophet, and he's ticked. (laughs) He gets out of Nineveh, and he's really angry. And it says, this displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. We talked about this last week. Like, he says to God, I did not want to go to the Ninevites because I hate them. And I knew, I knew what you were going to do. He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from 
disaster. Now you have to be a little bit of an Old Testament geek to know this, um, but if this sounds familiar, you're right. It is actually a quotation from Exodus 34.6. And Exodus 34.6, um, I've heard many people call it like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Like, this is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. Ever since it's written in Exodus, it gets picked up and used again and again and again throughout the rest of the Old Testament because this is God describing himself. It's actually the first time that God ever says anything about what his character is like. So I don't know if you want to flip there with me. I'm going to flip there. Um, Exodus 34, 6, what's happening right now in that passage is that God has just freed the Israelites from Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai and they get the Ten Commandments and they make a covenant with God. They've decided to have a relationship with him, to commit to him. Then Moses goes up on the mountain to talk to God for 40 days. And after only 40 days, what are the Israelites doing? Breaking one of the Ten Commandments they just signed their commitment to. And they make a golden calf and they dance around it and have this weird sexual fertility ritual. That's like exactly what they would do in Egypt with the Egyptian gods. And God gets really angry because he's like, I just committed to you. And I just told you that this is what I want. And you're already worshiping a false god. But Moses convinces God to forgive, to renew his covenant. And he says, show me who you are, God. And this is God's response. When God's trying to tell Moses who he is in the context of being angry at what the Israelites have just done, this is what he says. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands. So we flip back to Jonah, and he picks up this verse where God's talking about himself, and he, like, throws it back in God's face, right? He's saying, like, I knew you were like this. I knew you were going to be compassionate, and that's why I ran, because I knew this is who you are, and it's who you've been. It's who you've been from the start. <laughs> he throws it back in God's face as if this is a bad thing. I'm guessing that not many of us are feeling very sympathetic um, to Jonah right now, but... Before we get all high and mighty and just think, man, he's losing it. Chapter 4, like we need to know, is exposing the scandalous breadth of God's grace and compassion and the liberality of his love. Because I think that if we're really humble enough to think about it, I really love that Jesus has compassion for me. I don't always love that he loves the person that I hate or who hurt me or who I despise just as much as he loves me. Maybe I wish that I did, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think that we can identify with Jonah and feel this like resentment we have towards people who hurt us, this way that we try and stiff arm people who are not like us the fear we have of what's unknown to us, and we don't want God to feel the same way about them as he does about us. And so sometimes we get like Jonah and think, I knew you were like this. I know, I know what you're like, and I didn't want you to do that. So Jonah makes this shelter outside the city. Um, 
which I think means that he's planning on parking it and staying a while, because why? I think he's still hoping that he's going to watch Nineveh burn. I think that he's still hoping that they repented, but they're going to repent of their repentance. Like, they're going to keep being sinful, and then God's going to exercise his judgment and burn the place to the ground. I think that's what he's waiting for. But God meets him with so much compassion and so much grace. Like, before we go any further, I just want to emphasize the fact that this whole book, to me, it's not about Jonah. Like, if chapter 3 and 4 tell us anything, it is about how insane God's grace and goodness and love is. That he chased after these Ninevites and didn't let them go. That he wanted to redeem them and restore them to his, himself. And then in chapter 4, he does the same with his own prophet, who's saying, literally, I would rather die than live in a world where you are God. But he still goes after Jonah with gentleness and he says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? But Jonah's still giving God the stiff arm, and he runs away, and he makes his shelter. And so God says, okay, all right, so we're not going to be able to talk this out. We'll try a new tactic. Um, so then we get this weird story about the plant. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head and shade him from discomfort. Apparently our prophet's getting sunburnt, and so God provides some shade. Um, and Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? So Jonah, here he goes again, being dramatic. I think it shouldn't surprise us at this point because we've seen it already. He's sitting out there, stewing in his anger, wishing that God would just crush his enemy, and he's getting sunburned, and so he gets shade from a plant, and he's exceedingly happy, and then the plant dies, and he wants to die. And he says to God, like, it would be better for me to die than live. Um, and God still doesn't give up on him. He says, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. But this is, this is the important part. This is the big part. The Lord says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being at night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their, hand, their right hand from their left and also much cattle? It ends on the word cattle, laugh track again, it's funny, ha ha, instead of talking about fish, now we're talking about cattle. Um, but God's point is like, Jonah, okay, you have all this absurd emotion about this plant. And that's a little, like, it's weird, <laughs> it's dramatic, but like, if we just grant him, yes, okay, you feel this connection to this plant, that's great, Jonah. You're caring about something outside of yourself. That's wonderful. Should I not feel that same 
emotion for the Ninevites, that's what God's saying. Should I not feel that same amount of attachment, that same amount of anger at the idea of their destruction, that same amount of sadness if they were to be gone? I mean, he's saying, like, isn't a city with 120,000 people and also much cattle worth so much more to me than this plant? Isn't that so much more significant? He cares about their well-being and wants them to be with him. And so he says, Jonah, you are a part of the covenant people, and that is wonderful, but that does not excuse, excuse your religious hypocrisy. You are just as broken and just as misguided as they are, and shouldn't I be just as concerned about them as I am about you? And that's where it ends, which is a really weird ending. It kind of leaves us on a cliffhanger, and we don't know what Jonah's response is. And I think that that's precisely the point, because what did we talk about last week with the laser pointing right at you, right at your chest? This is supposed to be a mirror. And so now the author is presenting the question to you, because this book was never just about Jonah. It has always also been about us. And so now he poses the question to us and says, are you okay with it if God cares about your enemies this way? I think this chapter is a gut punch, especially when you have a fresh wound from an enemy. When somebody's hurt you, or you have somebody who's just really hard to forgive, or you have a people group that you don't like or you're afraid of, I think that there's parts of all of us that can resonate with this and don't like what our answer would be if God were to ask this of us. I mean, Jonah clearly thinks that the Ninevites are the worst, most wretched sinners on the planet. But, of course, who's the most hard-hearted person in the story? It's Jonah. But am I any better? Am I okay with it if God loves those that I don't like, that hurt me? The Ninevites don't deserve grace, but neither do I. That's the whole point, right? And yet God deals it out in abundance. He has mercy in spades for all of us. This ending is an invitation for us to see ourselves in Jonah and see the way that God has moved towards me in grace and towards others in grace in the same way. I mean, this is the gospel. This is the cross, right? Like, right here in the midst of the Old Testament, if there's anywhere in the world that the spiral of human brokenness has to end, it's at the foot of the cross. It has to be. We as a people gather around the cross are called to live better, not because we are better, but because we have been shown grace upon grace upon grace. So how do we respond? I'm going to call the band back up. Um, but I just want to think about this. Like, we also are presented this question, so what's the right response for us? I think it looks exactly like the king in chapter 3. I think that this is prompting us to take off whatever royal robe we want to put on ourselves and get down off of our thrones and to repent. Because we will receive grace if we are humble enough to admit that we are screwed up and grab onto the risen Lord instead. Because the cross is where God's judgment for sin and compassion for the sinner collide.
Like when you think about the cross, we were talking about God's judgment being part of his love. That's what it was. There had to be judgment for sin. That's where it was met. That judgment fell on Jesus. There has to be judgment. But there's also so much compassion and where better to look for that than the cross. So this symbol of our faith, this place where we fix our eyes, this place where we meet, is a symbol of this collision between God's judgment for sin and his compassion for the sinner and how they work in harmony to show how immense his love is. So what do we do? We keep getting off our thrones. We keep sitting in the dirt and saying, God, forgive me. You are right. You are better. Show me what is good. And I think we will keep getting off thrones our whole lives. I get off thrones every day. I have not gotten any better at not getting up on the thrones. I mean, I think by God's grace over time, we get a little bit better at this. There might be some thrones that we're not as easily to get on. We're probably going to move on from some sorts of sins, but there will be new ones. And I think the rest of our life, like this will be what it is. But whether it's your first time getting off the throne or your 78th for the very same thing, his love is stronger than your sin and his desire is for you to turn towards him and turn towards life, just like the Ninevites, just like Jonah. This story is a story of God's redemption. It shows God working his redemptive purposes for us and for other people. And that happens both through judgment and compassion. And it's good because it's all part of his love. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And there is love there for me and for my greatest enemy and for the person who has hurt me the most. And so I don't know what you need to hear today. I don't know if you need to be reminded to get up off your throne and to repent for what you have done wrong. And to come face to face with the fact that God's judgment is a good thing because you don't want him to be apathetic. Because you need a God who says that he wants to transform you. I don't know if you look at chapter 4 and feel like you got punched in the gut because you have somebody who you really don't want to like. You don't want to love and you don't really want God to love them either. (laughs) And so I don't know what you need out of this book. But I think that this book is a mirror for us. And more than anything else, it shows us God's character and that above all else, he is working out his redemptive purposes always in every circumstance, every day in me and in you and in all of us. So I encourage you as we go back into this time of worship to be thinking about what that means for you, to come face to the fa- face to face with the truth of God's character and what it means that his love looks like this and to get off our thrones. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you that you are unfailingly compassionate, that you are merciful and gracious, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that you chase after us. God, I thank you that you bring judgment because you love that you are not apathetic because I know there are parts of me that have to be taken out. There are parts of me that hurt myself, that hurt other people, and I can leave destruction in my wake. And so God, would you forgive me? Would you forgive us?
God, I thank you that you love us just as much as you love the people that we can't stand. That your compassion and your mercy is equal amongst all of us, that we are all recipients of the same unmerited grace. Lord, we thank you for the cross, for that place that is level ground where your judgment and your compassion and your love all combine to redeem us, to redeem our world. And so God, would you continue to do your work in our hearts, in our community, in our world? God, help us to be brave enough to encounter who you really are and to respond. (laughs) We love you, Lord. It's all in your name. Amen. Do you stand with us?